get to be with so many friends. Um, using a slideshow is something I've only started doing in the last six months. And the jury's still out. Some people say, it's nice to have the visual component. Other people say, gets in the way. So we're going to do some pictures and then turn it off and then have a conversation the old-fashioned way. All right? So uh, what I thought I would talk about tonight, um, everywhere I go in the Buddhist world, people ask, how do I connect the Dharma to my real life? And the question is most often, how do I cultivate? I've been meditating. I like the feel of Buddhist practice. But how do I make it connect in the real world? That's the question I hear most often. And there's different flavors of Buddhism, as many of you know. There's the cultivation that wants to end suffering and kind of get out now. And that's an awesome achievement. To be able in the workplace to find peace and stillness is a challenge. It's, it's heroic. There's another whole side of Buddhism that says we're all connected and nobody gets out until everybody gets out. So how do I stay right in the middle of, of the big catastrophe? and still not lose my balance. So one of the ways that in my tradition, which is the Chinese tradition called the Northern tradition, the Mahayana, one of the ways that comes up is called the Bodhisattva path. And the Bodhisattva, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the word, Bodhisattvas are awakened beings, literally. Bodhi to wake up, the same root to the word Buddha, and Sattva is a being. Bodhisattvas have what are called limitless attitudes. We call them the four limitless minds, the four limitless attitudes. Kindness, refer to them as a bodhisattva's power tools. Infinite kindness, infinite compassion. The fourth one is infinite serenity. And the one I wanted to talk about tonight, infinite (laughs) happiness. So it's not the case that Authentic Buddhists wear long faces and never smile. That would be an inauthentic bodhisattva, certainly. So those of us who admire bodhisattvas and who someday would like to actually practice like bodhisattvas, um, it's good to know some of the the descriptions of how real bodhisattvas must be. So um, what I thought I'd talk about tonight is one of the bodhisattva's power tools for achieving that balance in the world so that your practice and the Dharma connect. And... Every step can be deeper into your nature. So, um, the, never mind this, the Chinese for this is the Si Wu Liang Xin. Here we go. Si Wu Liang Xin, Bei Wu Liang Xin, Xi Wu Liang Xin, and She Wu Liang Xin. Questions What do I want in my life? Once I decide what I want, how do I get it? Okay, reasonable questions to ask at a Buddhist meditation evening when I'm here with myself in a supportive community of folks looking into the Dharma. Is happiness our natural state? (laughs) 
a horse in clover, up to his withers in clover. You ever see a horse smile? This is a smiling horse, right? Um, the horse is happy, right, in clover. So, is he naturally happy? Mm, what if it were, if he's standing in a parking lot? What if it's a horse at Walmart, you know, and he's up to his withers in SUVs, you know? It's like, maybe not quite so happy. So, if happiness is not our natural state, do we have to work to realize happiness? There's one alternative. The art of being happy lies in the power of extracting happiness from common everyday things. So if happiness is an art, then maybe it's more than natural. Maybe it's something that you have to cultivate. Okay, well, can I get it? That's not as simple a question as you might assume at face value. I know folks who assume that happiness is not in their power to obtain? The answer to that question would be, not necessarily. Okay, well, is happiness available to everybody? Mm, Does that depend on your socioeconomic status? Does that depend upon whether your candidate is currently in the White House? Does it depend upon how well your kids are behaving? Or can you still be happy if you've been pink-slipped? How about if you haven't had food for three days? How can I get happiness? There's a good Dharma question. Will happiness stay if I can get it? Mm. Complex. What will happiness cost? Are there any free lunches? Right? Do you have to trade something for happiness? Mm. Okay. So we're kind of in the zone. This is where we're heading tonight. All right? All right. What feels happy? There's a meditator's question. When you feel happy, if you do, and assuming you can, what is it that feels happy? We investigate. And what stays happy if you can hang on to it, which is a bigger challenge? Hmm. Question. Look at our terms. And I'm going to propose that happinesses are different depending on our age. Okay? I, talked, I gave a talk on Sunday to 80 kids from 6 to 16 mostly Chinese-American kids, but Silicon Valley Chinese-American kids who are arguably the most upwardly mobile and potentially uh, most empowered in the culture people studying today. They're very smart folks. And for them, these are the two words. No, let's see. I was going to go for fun. I came up with joy. I'll take it. Okay, but happiness and fun from about 11 down are the two words. You ask a kid, are you happy? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, I think, you know, they don't abstract it. It's kind of, I'm happy as long as things are going my way, you know, and I clean my room and I get A's, you know. So now adults move into joy, right? How about delight? That's decidedly not a kid's abstracted state, but delight is something that adults can embody. Delighted. How delightful. You know, meaning I can bear it, you know. Delightful and tolerance are pretty close. Delightful. Okay, bliss, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, that's happiness on the cushion, right? Bliss is not something that you experience with good food necessarily. It's bliss, what part of the body feels bliss? Okay, interesting. How about that one? That's decidedly an adult 
happy, isn't it? Contentment, right? Interesting. Pleasure, okay. Is that only sense-based? Is there intellectual pleasure? Is there aesthetic pleasure, right? Hmm, interesting, deep. All right. If you go online, go into Google and type happiness into Google and go for images, there's all these sage cartoons. <laughs> Apparently people assume sages are always looking on mountaintops. I don't have a beard, but, and, but notice the guy's up here and he's been told that he's looking for happiness in the wrong place, son. Right? So where's the right place to look for happiness? Good question. Does my happiness come from consuming, acquiring, and relationships? Okay. If you can swallow it, if you can listen to it, if you can watch it, if you can buy it, that's consuming, right? If you can own it, if you can sell it at half.com, right? And your relationships. Does my, the question, does my happiness come from those? Here are the keys. I like that. I love that. I want that. I need that. I have that. So far, so good. Okay, as long as the world's going your way. All right? But, 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 if my happiness comes from consuming, acquiring, and relationships, what happens when? I don't like it anymore. <laughs> right? I hate it, her, him. Now, something changed, right? It, he, she went away, and it was happy until it changed. Oops. I lost it. It's not the same now, right? It got scratched. It got dirty. It became last quarter's upgrade. I broke it. Oh, really? You know, it went away. I don't feel the same way now, right? The line that powered a dozen Beach Boys songs. I don't feel the same way, right? And things are different now. But it was happy, but. Okay, if my happiness comes from consuming, acquiring relationships, what happens when those things happen? AT&T says the key to happiness is cheaper long-distance service, but Fruit of the Loom says the key to happiness is nice undies. On the other hand, Pillsbury says, <laughs> okay, happiness is based on things changes when those things change. Okay, so we're all on the same page, I think. This is, um, it's amazing how, if we're honest, how much we have to have these things said before we name that. You know, and kids, when I on Sunday for these kids, you could see the gears turn because naming it was so helpful. Saying, right, if happiness comes from stuff that I consume, stuff that I get, and then who I'm with, that's fragile. That has a, a shelf life. Okay. Our, our hearts beat as one till death do us part. Right? Good luck. <laughs> Wish them well. <laughs> Honestly. Why are you laughing? Hey. That's supposed to be it. Isn't it? So, the question returns. What feels happiness? 
What gets happy? What stays happy? Good question. Okay, to approach it, let's look at it from a Dharma point of view. Okay. Question is, what is a person? Never mind these characters. These were there for the other folks. Body and mind is what a person is. Okay. These are familiar terms for many of you. If, you're, if this is the first time you've seen a Buddhist index of what is a person, we're into the realm of Buddhist personality inventory. There's a reason why about a third of the Spirit Rock East Bay group that James talked about, why a third of them are psychotherapists, right? It's because the Buddha is somebody who investigated his mind to the ultimate point and then left a roadmap. He said, people are basically body and mind. The body and mind are divided into five components. Body, that's form, earth, air, fire, and water in this temporary makeup that's changing, male, female, young, old. Right? Feelings, we're into the mind now. Thoughts, formations, that's a tough one, and consciousness. The mind has four things. Feeling, body, is that. It's this physical thing like a suit of clothes. The feelings include both sensation, i.e., chilly, warm, hard, soft, smooth, rough, etc., right? Comfortable, uncomfortable. But it also includes emotions. So emotions is in that second skanda. These are called skandhas, heaps, components, kind of like your computer, right? You need a monitor, a CPU, a mouse, a keyboard, a printer, a scanner, a modem, wireless, broadband, right? That's your computer, <laughs> depending on your computing experience, all right? So, those components take away the keyboard and your computer is suddenly changes, all right? So, take away these skandhas and people are different. Take away the components. This is the Buddha's inventory of personality. So, feelings include sensation and emotion. Thoughts is that experience. And I don't want to point up here, the Chinese say the thinking, the seat of thinking is here. They always go mind, you know. And thoughts are like waves in the water, one after the other, one after the other. They're only part of the experience. So head-heavy graduate students, you know, it's such a relief to discover that, that we are something other than our thoughts. And our quality is not graded on the inciseness, conciseness of our analysis, right? So, thoughts, formations is a tough one, I say, because it's called samskara. And samskara means a variety of things. One is the autonomic processes. So, digestion, breathing, growth, fingernails, hair, etc., aging. That's all part of that skanda. And it's mind but it's a, it's a meta level, it's a deeper level. It's not volitional, okay? So this is autonomic. It's also things like opinion, attitude, concepts, yours, mine, hers, his. That's where the samskara, skanda, that heap, is definitely us. But it's a level of mind that is deeper. It's kind of further down the tree, if you will. And then consciousness is in there, the thing that tells the difference. Okay, I sees red and says red in whatever language. Okay, ears hear sound and distinguishes pleasant sound, unpleasant sound, heavy metal, chamber music, right? That's in consciousness skanda. Okay, so given that that's the Buddha's 
analysis of a person, where's happiness? What part of that? The five skandhas, according to the Buddha, come at conception, which happens right away, uh, according to the traditional standard interpretation. And it's the last thing that goes. When we die, they say the skandhas scatter and something travels. But the other parts, the body, feelings, thoughts, samskara, formations, and consciousness scatter. So where's the happiness? Okay, what I'm going to do now is take you to um, an analysis of what I'm going to suggest is a, a more sound place to look for happiness because there's a chance of, of recognizing it and hanging on to it, or at least being in charge of it. Okay, and this comes from the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Adornment Sutra. This is a major scripture in the Mahayana tradition. And it says that there are three worlds where people live authentically all at once. The question is, are we awake in those three worlds? Balance in the three is the place of happiness and satisfaction from this description. Okay, ready? People inhabit three worlds at once. One is a material world, body, environment, possessions, all those. Okay, things that you could say are outside, but we depend on. And they change. But we're authentically there. Now, the mistake comes when we are only there. I'd like you to meet Fred. He's in plastics. Right? Well, you know, we had to right-size our company, and so we're getting rid of, uh, we're, we're trimming the HR staff. Right? So... Okay, well, yeah, but that's my life, you know. Um, This is Philip's wife, Dorothy, you know. It's like, um, not only, right? Okay, so that's the material world, and we are in that world. We embody, but we're not only there, okay? What else? Buddha said, we're in a relational world, okay? There'll be more about this in a minute. Further, he said, we're in a spiritual world. Some of us awake, some of us less awake. Happiness and satisfaction in life, sounds like a heavy-duty incoming judgment, right? Happiness and satisfaction in life depends upon finding a balance in all three worlds. Here they are. Here's the world of things. Here's the world of beings relationships. Here's the world of awakening. The being successfully able to to attract happiness and hold on to it puts us in the middle of those. The world of things, the world of beings, the world of awakening requires a person. That's the Chinese character for human, Ren. Okay, how do we balance? Are we balanced in the midst of those? Let's take a look. Here we go. We live in a variety of relationships at once. For example, 
all of us in the room, I can say without fear of contradiction, children of parents. Okay? Anybody who didn't born was wasn't born from a mom, don't raise your hand because we don't want to know. Just meditate. Okay? So. Many of you are parents of children. I am not, so I don't have that experience. But that sits upon you parents invisibly, lightly, heavily, joyfully, less so, right? If they're teenagers, less so, right? We are husbands or wives of spouses. Yes, no, okay. But it's there, invisibly. That's a, the green, the world of relationships. We are brothers, sisters of siblings, simultaneously. We are students of teachers, maybe teachers of students, friends of friends. We are citizens, employees, teammates, and so forth. We're actively participating in that world right now. Okay, so, okay, so what are we doing? Expanding that definition of who I am and where I live. This is identity, okay? Who are we, is the question. And then, is happiness attainable? Okay, that's interesting. You know, for folks who contemplated suicide, just reviewing this list is you suddenly feel not alienated, not broken, cut off, but how do you stop being a sister or a brother? Right? That's with us. And it allows a more authentic, richer existence. Okay, take a look. What about the world of awakening? Here are the qualities of that green world on top, okay, defining who we are. What would your life be like without a sense of humor, without imagination, without analytic, rational thinking? If you didn't have it, you might vote for George W. Bush, but we won't, we won't go there. That's okay. I didn't say that. Strike that from... Abstract thinking, the ability to, to think of the immaterial, right? Where is that? Is that part of your material world, your relational world? No. But what would your life be like without it? Logical thinking? Yes. Language and symbol. Where does that live? Invisible. Until you write it, until it's written symbol. But we use that, that incredible facility. It's part of that awakening world. Are we in touch with it? Are we awake to it? Are we grateful for its presence? How about creativity? That's that world of awakening that enriches our day, or doesn't. How about aesthetic sense? Wishing, hoping, right? Anticipating Christmas if you're nine years old, right? Or your birthday, right? Where do these things live? They live in that world of awakening. How about your quest for knowledge, truth-seeking, your intuition, all the Jungian things, wonder, where does that live? And who, who would you be without it? Right? And yet, who values it? Right? Invisible. Can't buy it. Can't sell it. It's not on the big board. It's not reported as NASDAQ goes up or down. And yet, you know, imagine a life without a sense of, wow. Self-reflective thought. The ability to say, I really made a mistake. I'm sorry. Right? Where does that live? The ability to choose. I think this is marvelous, right? Who praises the ability to hold two options in your mind, invisible, and go, 
that one, right? The ability to heal something that was broken. What a gift. This is the world of awakening. Are we alive and awake in that world? What about wisdom? If, if Buddhism had a highest good, it would be wisdom and its correlate in compassion. Okay, and that comes directly from the human experience. Cultivated. Okay, now, you're getting the drift of this. Happiness. Is happiness something we get and hold? Or is it a state of being that comes from simply awakening and balancing in the midst of what is already there, only underappreciated? Or you could say asleep too. Okay. Now, so far, these are all kind of on the prajna side. This is kind of the, this is the insightful side, right? This is gears turning. The, the last four are not analysis. They're putting back together. Let's take one more step into the heart. Empathy, sense of shame, selflessness, service, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And finally, from the Mahayana's point of view, the resolve for Bodhi, that wish to wake up and benefit beings, to be, maximize your potential for wisdom. This, these are the highest, for my money, being a monk, mind you, this is the <laughs> highest goodness in the heart. Okay, and yet, not a single, they say, not a single living being is cut off from these. This is something anyone can aspire to and realize with cultivation. But what richness? Okay, these are the virtues of the world of awakening that when you name them, point to them, look for them, you think, oh, wow, I'm feeling better already, you know, happier. It's not in getting only. Now, I don't mean to demean acquiring and consuming and relationships. They are genuinely happy, but they come and go. In two of the three worlds, things come apart, things come together and then come apart. In the world of awakening, you're in charge of creating your own happiness. Now, when I showed this, there was this sharp nine-year-old. He said, what's the golden retriever doing on that slide? <laughs> I said, happy? I, you know. Probably if I could do it again, I'd take the golden retriever out. because he. But anyway, that's a happy dog. Dogs are happy. In two of the three worlds, things, no relationship between the picture and the text, all right? So, so that's what I told him. I said, very good, head of the class, you're too smart, don't raise your hand anymore. Okay, in two of the three worlds, things come together and then come apart. In the world of awakening, you're in charge of creating your own happiness. It's a matter of waking up to something already there. What a lot of work there is to do. What a, what a fertile field there is. Okay. Uh, let's go here. Monk to Master. Sure, where do blessings come from? Master to Monk. Blessings come from making people happy, he said. Here's a principle. Helping others is the source of happiness. That's a Chinese proverb. That's not actually a Buddhist proverb, but that's in the Chinese uh, lexicon. If you want to be happy, help somebody else. Okay, and this, is, this was uh, an illustration designed for the kids that day, but it works. Golf bag, 13-year-old golfer, happy kid, got a golf bag for his birthday, 
okay, happy, right? I had more hair then. So. <laughs> but the other half of the picture, and this is what amazed the kids, was the father who gave the golf bag. Look at the happiness. Helping others is a source of happiness. Okay. As a blessing, my mother turned around and turned the camera around and took a picture the other direction. Right? Look at my dad. Okay. Parents have the best time on Christmas. It's true. Getting is great. Giving is greater. Okay. Helping others. So, in the Buddhist tradition, there's uh, Amitabha Buddha. They talk about the land of utmost happiness. And Nirvana is said to have four attributes, permanence, joy, true self, not the false, illusory self, and purity. So, anyway, there we go. Uh, let's, let's move on now. I have a, uh, another... Oh, there's Master Hua. This is my teacher. Let me show you that one. This is from the, the Chinese tradition. This is Master Zheng Yan. She's... Uh, the inspiration behind a group called Siji, Compassionate Rescue in Taiwan. She's quite something. And there's, there's my teacher and myself, younger, Master Xuanhua, and uh, their source of happiness is the Buddha Amitabha. Just see, see that. Okay, now, um, let me take us to... Helping others. Okay. This is a picture of an image, a Buddha image, Erstor Bodhisattva, Dizang Pusa, Shitagarbha Bodhisattva, in Hualien, Taiwan. This is the federal penitentiary in Hualien. The story goes like this. I, I spend, as James mentioned, I spend a fair amount of time in Taiwan, and Hualien is on the east coast. It's a city of lotus flowers, they say. But... Um, there's also a prison there where um, we have a connection. And because Taiwan is genuinely a Buddhist country, um, we often go to the prison to do prison visits. And there's a warden in the prison named uh, Warden Zhang. And he, somebody says, if anybody's a bodhisattva, it's probably Warden Zhang in the Hualien prison. He uh, organized an opportunity for his he calls them classmates, to take refuge and become Buddhist, to take the formal refuge ceremony. And, and he, he's an amazing fellow. He doesn't smile, but he has the utmost, utter respect of his classmates who are in there for everything. And so he, he talks in a very quiet voice. And when I visited, he, you know, he put the put the chair on the edge of the stage and he's got you know 300 guys down there with their in shackles and wearing flip-flops because if you wear flip-flops you can't run very fast fewer escapes you go through 11 steel gates to get to the the center auditorium where we're sitting and so warden Zhang sits on the edge of his chair and he leans forward and he goes 
all right, I brought these monks from America. And if you guys listen, it's not going to take your bodies out of here, but your minds can go over the wall. He says, and these guys are, you know, some of them are tattooed head to toe and there's scars, you know. So um, he pulled me over afterwards and said, uh, I want you to see this image. He said, this is a Buddhist, this is a bodhisattva image, earth story. It's Jizo Bodhisattva from the Japanese tradition. In Chinese is Dizang Pusa, earth story. And it's a, it's a 12-foot image. It's really magnificent. And it was built by a, the former warden of the prison who was a Franciscan Catholic. But he knew that most of the inmates came from Buddhist backgrounds or, you know, or Taoist. And so he said, they need some spiritual anchor. Tell me what to build. So Master Zhang said, make an earth store. So he paid for it, put this image. It's in the courtyard. And so Zhang has been telling his inmates, you guys, you get half an hour of break time every day. You can go out, shoot baskets, go out, pump iron, you choose to, or you can go in that courtyard and bow to the bodhisattva. You bow to the bodhisattva, he says, I'm putting a merit in your book. I'll watch. It's up to you. So these guys do. They take their only half hour, instead of smoking, instead of shooting bas- baskets, they go out and they bow to the bodhisattva. Okay? So these are the ones that he brought forward to take refuge. And uh, so this time I took my guitar to uh, this, this trip which was uh, kind of a gamble, because in Taiwan, Buddhist monks don't play guitars. <laughs> you should know that. Uh, but this is America, after all, and you know. So um, we ex-folky types um, use guitars to teach the Dharma. So here's our group. This is our delegation. See that image? That's in the center courtyard after 11 iron gates to get there. That's what it looks like. And uh, so, okay, I'm, I'm sitting over here in the, on your right side. So here are the inmates, handcuffed to their seats, because some of them are not yet convinced that they're, they have a future. And uh, so I did a song. Here I am with my guitar, singing. And the song, there we go, the song is called Satisfied mind, and this is a um, this is a Dharma song. If you ever heard one, so I wanted to do it for you. Yeah, that one. When I did when I sang it, um, I had everybody's attention. I must say, probably because they weren't used to being sung to by monks of blue eyes in English, but. Uh, <laughs> But something about this song got him in English, okay? And the warden said, translate it, translate it. So I translated it, sang it again, and there wasn't a dry eye. Something about this song, a satisfied mind, they were just going, if only. So, principle of this is to say, happiness can be It's an adult kind of happiness. It's called being content. 
How many times have you heard someone say, If I had his money, her money, I'd do things my way. But little they know. So hard to find one rich man in ten, woman in ten, with a satisfied mind. Once I was winning in fortune and fame. Had all that I needed to make a start in life's game, then suddenly it happened. I lost every dime, but now I'm richer by far. The satisfied mind. Now we'll change the slide. Cause money won't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, a heart that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times, compared to the one with the satisfied mind. Is over. My time's run out. My friends and my loved ones. I leave them no doubt. But there's one thing for certain. It comes my time. I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. Now you want to hear in Chinese? No, no, no. I wouldn't threaten. Okay, well, so um, the idea being that there is satisfaction in being content. Um, like I say, that's a pretty adult 
kind of happiness, and yet um, it's attainable. Okay, my point is that if we know where to look and identify, um, oops, that's not what I want. If we can identify where that happiness lives, we have a chance to make it stay. Be right with you. Here we go. Nope. But I'm unhappy. Here we go. Um, Master Hua, Four Legacies, Establish the Sangha, Translate Sutras, Educate, Interface Dialogue. Here we go. Wanted to show you that. Then we're going to turn this off. Okay. DRBA.org, that's where you find out more about what I'm doing. Buddhist Books and Materials, BTTSonline.org. We're going to run through these and turn off. I webcast on Saturday nights, sutra lectures. That's where you find it. Um, young people, drby.net. We have an amazing bunch of college students who are full-time studying Dharma. Spirit Rock Youth used to meet at the monastery. So our group is uh, doing stuff. drby, dharmarealmbuddhistyouth.net. If you want to send email to me for any reason, paramita at drba.org. Okay. Stories of Bowing Pilgrimage. That's on the uh, Santa Barbara coast. Students Roundtable, every other Thursday night at the Berkeley Monastery, one in San Jose, too. Uh, let's see here. Interfaith Dialogue. United Religions Initiative. You heard it here, just so you run that one by you. URI.org. This is, uh, so I, do, I spend a lot of time with interfaith. Um, we have a, an American Muslim sitting on the right, a Brahma Kumaris nun. We have a Christian scientist, uh, a Buddhist, a Hindu from Bali, and uh, two Chinese-American Buddhists sitting on a beach at Rio, meditating, interfaith. Okay. So there we go. We're going to put this to sleep for just a bit. Okay, now, given what I've said, 
Let me review. We started out with questions such as, um, is happiness available? If so, does it last? Where do I feel it? Can I get it and lose it? Yeah, that's obvious. Um, Are there methods? How do I make it stay? Probably a deeper question, and I think the one that is most telling is, am I empowered? Is happiness my share? Can I expect happiness? Okay, so, good, yeah. Um, I think those questions have to be asked because there's a bunch of folks who experience has taught them that happiness turns around and bites them, you know, or it's somebody else's. Or worse, we dedicate our entire lives to pursuing pleasure faster and faster and faster, right? Upping the ante, threshold goes up, and always behind that one is pain is catching up, right? Faster we run for the pleasure, the faster the pain pursues. So how many of us spend our lifetime running from pain, pursuing pleasure, right? Well, that's in a world where marketplace values tell us that happiness waits just on the other side of that purchase. For sure, there's, you're never going to quite get it. It's always there. Here's my credit card. Give me happiness. Right? So, folks who've already self-selected to come meditate on a Monday night when you could be doing so many other different things are, are folks who have already pretty much started to turn that outward pursuit around, right? You couldn't sit still for 45 minutes if happiness was somewhere out there dancing at the edge of your six senses, promising the real good stuff out there. Just a little faster and you'll get it. Not. So, given those three worlds, right? World of material, world of relationships, and the world of awakening, and all that incredible richness that is invisibly part of us. Nobody lacks access to all those things because why they're inside. I would like folks to reflect on the possibility of locating happiness in that green world. Why? Because it's in our power to wake up to it. Right? Nobody can give you a sense of humor. Nobody can enhance your imagination. They can feed it. But the ability to move into that world and focus on it is ours. Okay? Ultimately heading towards wisdom and compassion. So, why would a bodhisattva experience limitless, infinite happiness? Right? Because the bodhisattva's job is giving. Right? An awakened being is somebody who says, yeah, I could end suffering for myself, but I'm awake to the deeper connection. And I see that this is my body. And if this part of it's suffering, this part is not liberated yet. So bodhisattvas 
challenge is huge, altruistic, giant. But the potential for the joy is also equally huge. The more they give, the happier they get. Okay, in the Tao Te Ching it says, the sage is not something someone the world understands because they give infinitely. And yet, paradoxically, the more they give, the more there is to give. Okay. Um, bowing on the highway, imagine you're at Point Sur. Okay, in Big Sur. Big Sur Lighthouse. And the wind blows there. I'm not a wind person. I, I, my, I'm an earth ox in the Chinese, you know. Couldn't be more grounded, earthy, slow, you know. And I'm, I have a, I'm all water in my Western horoscope. So um, I don't like wind all that much. I have trouble in the wind. And when we were doing a pilgrimage, myself and the other monk, we, we, we traveled about a mile a day. And uh, we were intimately connected to the coast of California. You know, every three steps, one bow. So I spent a large part of my day prone, you know, down below the shoe top level. And we were going through Big Sur during spring, windy, windy time. And at Point Sur, it was kind of like being in the tail of a dragon. You know, you take, fight your way up, and as soon as you get up, the wind blows you three steps back, and you lean forward, you know, at an angle like this to bow. And, and it, once you get under the wind, it slams you down, you know. And then you stand up and you catch the wind and you go back. And fighting and grit and, you know, and everything blowing. So it was exhausting. And um, the highway is very narrow in parts of Highway 1, just this little ribbon that snakes along there. And so when it was too narrow to bow, we would, we would take our beads and uh, we, would, we would count. We'd take three steps and a bead, three steps and a bead, three steps and a bead, and count them up. When we got to a place that was wide enough, a turnout, we'd bow there, and maybe you'd have 200 bows. We'd get bottle caps and, you know, pieces of rocks and line them up and then bow, and then add 10%, make sure we didn't cheat, and then count ahead to the next spot till it was wide enough. So often we'd be stuck in a spot for, you know, a morning, you know, three hours in one spot, and the wind blowing like crazy. So we were in the Point Sur Lighthouse parking lot, because it was fairly wide there. And uh, it was a Monday morning, and the weekends, there's a lot of traffic on Highway 1. Mondays, weekdays, not much. People are either in Santa Barbara or Monterey. You know. So um, it was about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, and this car comes by. It was the first car in an hour, and it was a big Cadillac with the big fins. And <sighs> comes around the corner on two wheels, and <sighs> goes flowing by, you know. And then, scree! didn't hear anything. And then slowly, slowly the car backs up. And I'm in front. The other monk, the other monk talked. His, his job, he was called the Dharma protector because we, we were both silent. That didn't work. So, so the other monk talked and he was behind me. He also cooked and drove the car. So, and he also bowed. He had the hard job. So um, I can hear footsteps ching, ching, coming up, crunch, crunch in the gravel. And then I hear this conversation, but the wind is blowing by me, so I can't quite focus. And then I'm aware as I'm bowing, there's somebody on my left. And I'm, I'm bowing. And I'm not supposed to look, you know. It's insincere. You know. <laughs> so, but I'm standing here like this. 
and this person steps into my field of vision, he's got his hands together, palms together, and he's doing a half bow. And it's a man, he's about 6'4", and he probably weighed about 210 pounds. African-American gentleman, with a big scar right here, and pockmarks on his face, wearing a Hawaiian shirt with short sleeves, flapping in the wind, and tears running down his face. And he's got his palms, he just looks, and then he kind of backs up, you know. And I hear voices, and uh, I don't hear any more. And I hear, about ten minutes later, the car door shuts, and then slowly drives away. So it's time for the break for lunch. And so I have curiosity, you know, I can't wait. So I like, who was that? And I write, <laughs> write a note, you know. And so uh, the other monk says, oh, man. He says, i got to write it down first. I don't want to forget it. So he took his journal and he wrote it down. And uh, so I read the account. And, and it was Riley. Riley was on his way to L.A., because he'd just gotten out of prison. And he pulled over, and I'm reading in this journal, and Riley told his story, and he said, uh, I was driving down the highway, I, I saw you guys, I had to pull over. He says, uh, are, you, are, are you Buddhists? And the monk says, yeah, yeah, that's right. He says, Buddhists? Buddhists? In this country? He said, I can't believe it. Yeah, but you're Americans, right? Yeah, yeah. He says, you're white, right? Yeah, yeah. Speak English? Yeah. He says, oh, this is too much to believe. And he starts to cry. He said, let me tell you my story. He says, I got put away for five years for a crime I didn't commit. And he said, I was so angry. I didn't want to talk to anybody because I was going to eat their veins, had them between my teeth and suck their blood. He said, I was so angry. He said, but I knew that wasn't going to help. So he said, I went to the library in the prison. And I found one book that helped me. And it was called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And Marty said, yeah, I read that book. He said, you know that book? He said, oh. He said, I can't believe it. I kept that book under my pillow. He said, I read those stories backwards and forwards. There was wisdom. There was compassion. It was Buddhist, right? He says, oh, he says, that, that book spoke to my soul. It set me free. He said, but I never thought I would see real Buddhists in America. He said, listen, I've seen Krishnas, I've seen Moonies, I've seen things that you've never seen before. He said, I've seen them all, but I've never seen this. He says, Buddhism is here. It's real. It's not long ago and far away. It's liberation, right? You know, and Marty says, yeah, 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 you got it. That's it, Riley. <laughs> he says, it's right here. He says, oh, I can't believe it. He said, could I go look at the other monk? Would I bother him? Ah, go ahead, you know. <laughs> so that was my end of the story, you know. And Riley comes up and looks and he's got tears. And, and Marty, the last thing he wrote was, he said, Riley came back and just shook his head and his tears were streaming down and his eyes were big as crystal platters to realize that it wasn't just a dream, you know. So uh, sometimes, you know, happiness comes from giving just by doing, you know. So I'd never forgotten Riley, and I gave without even intending to, you know. And it's very, very satisfying to realize um, in that world of awakening that we're in charge 
of that happiness. It's just a question of waking up to it. Anyway, uh, one more story, and then it's time to stop. Um, when in our tradition, uh, in, the, in the Mahayana, whenever we do something like a Dharma talk or a ceremony or a, an assembly of any kind, um, we do dedication of merit at the end. And in the Theravada tradition, it's the same, right? May the, sun, may the highest gods and evil forces, the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world. That's the Theravada equivalent. We have something called dedication of merit. And we've always done it in Chinese before, but now it's finally in English. And uh, I'd like to, to invite people to, to join me. Um, the story goes that uh, I was part in that um, interfaith thing that I do. Um, I spend a lot of time with Catholics a lot of Catholic Buddhist encounters, monastics. And I was invited to Our Lady of Grace convent in Beech Grove, Indiana, uh, for a Buddhist Catholic conference. Actually, Norman Fisher uh, is part of that. I know Norman's going to be teaching here or has taught here. And it was called Benedict's Dharma, where the Buddhists come and give reflections on the rule of St. Benedict. So the dialogues have come that far that the Catholics are comfortable with us reacting to their their crown jewels, which is the rule of St. Benedict, and they to our Buddhist monastic tradition. So, uh, it was 918, 2001. It was uh, seven days after the two towers had fallen. And a lot of people didn't come because they were, you know, remember, you can recall what it was like then. But we went, and so here were 200 Catholics and Buddhists. And the the event was over, and Sister Mary Margaret came and said, Now I know, she said, I've been part of your dedications of merit. Would you do one for us? Could you could you lead everybody in the closing? And I said, yeah. yeah. In English? Well, we'll try. So that night, the night before, we uh, translated the... the we translated the Chinese version. And then we needed a tune. So I took uh, Lorena McKennett's Dark Night of the Soul. Anybody know? Some, some do. Lorena McKennett is an amazing Celtic, uh, Canadian, Celtic-inspired composer from uh, Saskatchewan or Manitoba. She's now in Ontario. And uh, I asked her if we could use this melody, and she gave permission. So this has been um, uh, fairly successful, I guess you could say, um, interfaith dedication of merit, because there's a bunch of folks who seem to be using it now, um, including Catholic monks um, who have um, made it their own in a wonderful way. So I'd like to close with this. And here's the way you do it. Make a wish. You take the merit, the virtue, what we call good roots, the blessings that come from spending your lifetime, your breath, your attention, your consciousness here together with good Dharma friends in a supportive, blessed environment like this place. And that's actually a quality. That's not nothing. It's a, it's a something. There's something there. It's called merit, punya in Sanskrit. And we can actually give that away. Um, you make a wish and send it out however you'd like to do it. And the mind is perhaps the most powerful thing in the world. And a concentrated mind is the most powerful of minds. So let's take our samadhi that we get from our focus and our precepts and make a wish. Send it out 
however you'd like to see it. Maybe a wish personal, something that someone in your family who needs strength, someone in your community who is experiencing ill health, for example, or is having difficulty, dedicate the merit to them. Things, uh, imitate the Christ-like life, whatever your particular wish might be. That's yours to make. So when we do it together, it's quite strong, it's quite powerful. So I'd like to invite you now to, to make that wish, and uh, let's put our hearts into it. So this will be the dedication, and after this we'll, we'll end, and uh, it's been a, a joy, it's been a source of happiness to be with all of you today. of peace with hearts of goodness luminous and bright if people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity may their minds awake to grace compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. Blessings on everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.